Well, uh, the last few weeks for myself have been pretty exciting. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, just a little over a week ago to go visit some of our mission partners there in Guatemala, the Lopez's, uh, Callie and Estuardo Lopez. Uh, if you'll remember, Callie grew up here at our church, and I had some pretty surreal moments. I was able to take Callie on her very first mission trip, and now she lives there, and we were able to just join with her on mission. Uh, there was two other people that went with me, Heidi Marburger and then Emma Gardner, a young lady. She's about 19 years old. And it's pretty cool to see what God's doing. Emma is actually still there. So be in prayer for her as she's staying with them for a little longer. But uh, it's just been a, a, an amazing time. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, you kind of go through the same feelings that I'm going through. You kind of are coming off of this high, this incredible moment uh, where we've seen God at work. And uh, one of the things that I kind of want to share with you, and I've, I've noticed this for several years now, um, is we get to go to a city called Antigua. And Antigua is a very religious city. There's a lot of religion in that city, steeped in Catholic tradition. And uh, just about on every street, it's an ancient city. There's these cobblestones on every street. And I notice, every time I go there, I notice this same sign. And I want to show you a picture of it. You probably won't be able to see it super well. Um, but this is one of the streets there. But I think I got a blow up of it there uh, in there. Do I have an extra picture there? I don't. I'm sorry, Daniel. That was my fault. But right here in the corner, you see this little sign there. It says Alto Una Via. And uh, Alto means stop. You can kind of probably recognize that. And Una Via means one way. And it is literally on every street corner that you come to, you will find that symbol, that little sign. And I've noticed this for years. So like, we've been going to Guatemala for several years. And I remember uh, even this trip, I was talking to Heidi, and I said, you know, the Lord has always just put in my heart this message uh, off of that sign. And, and honestly, it was actually something I said, you know, one day I'm going to share a message here in Guatemala about that very sign, Una Via, which means one way. Little did I know that God was actually working that message not for Guatemala someday in the future, but actually for this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about this particular sign and its implications for us. We're in a series called Like No Other, and it's really this idea that Jesus is unrivaled. There is none like him, and there are things about Christ that are only reserved for him. And to get us started this morning, I want you to look at your introduction there. I've got some, uh, some of Pleasant City Church's beliefs and values here. Look at what it says. We believe Jesus is unrivaled in history and eternity. He is glorious both now and forever. And his name is the only name that saves. We believe that people were created to exist Forever, We will either exist eternally separated from God by sin or eternally with God through forgiveness and salvation. Only by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's offer of forgiveness can anyone be saved from sin's penalty. And I, I know we are familiar with this. I know uh, if you go to our, our culture values, if you go to our beliefs, you will find this written verbatim. But my question for you to think about this morning is this, do you really believe that? Do we really believe these 
words. What are the consequences for believing this? And what are the consequences for not believing this? These are the questions I want you to think about this morning uh, as we look at God's Word. Turn to John chapter 14 with me this morning. John chapter 14, I kind of want to set this passage up. It's a passage that you're probably familiar with. But in John 14, Jesus is spending the last evening with his disciples before his death. So it's the last evening, they're having a meal together, and hours later, he'll be arrested, and the suffering and pain will really start to begin for Jesus. And that this last meal, if you look through all of the Gospels, you find out Jesus reveals a lot to his disciples in this last supper, this last meal. He reveals, one, that he's going away. That the, the, the guy that they walked with, lived with, stayed right with for the last three years, he was going away. We also know that he, he proclaimed that he's about to die. Like right here at this dinner, he proclaimed that one out of the 12 of these guys was going to betray him. In fact, just before this, or excuse me, just after this moment, or before this moment, the one does. The one leaves. Judas leaves the supper. We, we learn here that Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, you're going to disown me. You're going to disown me. We find out that Jesus says to his disciples, hey, Satan is at work against you. So they're hearing all of this information. And the last, one of the few things Jesus says that really shocks them is he says to them, hey, tonight all of you are going to scatter. All of you are going to leave me. You're all going to scatter. So when you think about this meal, this is not the typical Texas roadhouse meal, right? Like, we're not, we're not doing line dancing here and having birthday songs every five minutes. This is a very serious dinner. And all of the weight of this information that Jesus gives them, it had to have depressed them. It had to have bummed them out. And so in the middle of all of this, knowing this, Jesus gives us John 14. And look at what he says in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Another translation for that word is rooms, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now, this is not an unfamiliar passage of Scripture for us. In fact, this is one of those Scriptures that we hear often. I hear this passage read at funerals often, right? Like when you're grieving a loved one or you're grieving a friend, someone that, that you're at their funeral, I hear this passage a lot. And the reason you hear it a lot is because it's a pleasant passage, right? I mean, this is an awesome passage to think about, that there is eternity awaiting, right? A heaven that God himself, that Jesus himself is preparing for us. And it's a pleasant thing to think about. And, and, and really what it is, is it's a common sentiment, right? It's a common sentiment that just about every human shares this, this desire for eternity, this desire for something in the future. And it's not just Christians that think this. It's not just believers. Every major religion 
has a common sentiment for heaven. Think about this. The Hindus and the Buddhists, they're alike because they believe this. They believe in samsara. Samsara, it's a, the word we think of is the word reincarnation. It's the cycle of rebirth based on karma, based on how you behave that hopefully will end, for the Buddhist and the Hindu, that hopefully will end in something called nirvana. That's their heaven. That's this place that they all want to get to. So if you're really good in life, you're going to move up the ladder of society. If you're really bad, you might come back like as a goat. But the goal in samsara is to move towards nirvana, move towards their idea of heaven. Muslims. Muslims believe in a place called Jannah as their heaven, where they keep the five pillars of Islam, that five pillars being pilgrimage, uh, declaration, prayer, alms, fasting, that they're all reaching for this place. And, and quite frankly, the Muslim belief on that is, is actually a very sexualized place. In fact, if you're a martyr for the faith of the Muslims, you, you receive 72 virgins. It's this, this idea, that's their, their thought process for heaven. The Roman Catholics, Roman Catholicism teaches that your determination of destination to heaven may in fact be determined on how many people pray for you after you die. That maybe you weren't such a great person in this life. Maybe you enter a place called purgatory and maybe that's where people will start to pray for you. They'll feel sorry for you. They'll hopefully pray you out of purgatory to get to heaven. Mormons, Mormons believe you get your own planet. And, and, and some religious sects of Mormonism actually say that if you're a woman, the real basis on whether you make it to heaven, whether you make it to your planet, is how obedient and how submissive you were to your spouse. That for a lot of Mormons, their belief system for the woman is, hey, if you were a good wife, you'll make it to the planet that your husband gets to gets to serve on, gets to lead on. The Jehovah's Witness believe there are 144,000 that go to heaven, and the ones that are going have probably already been chosen. So for them, heaven's kind of a, oh, I hope I'm in that 144,000. But if you think about it, almost every major religion has their common sentiment, their version of what heaven looks like. But it's not just the religious people that believe in heaven. ABC News conducted a poll to find that 8 out of 10 people, 8 out of 10 people believe there's a heaven and 7 out of those 8 believe they're going to make it. That they're going to go to that heaven. And, and so when we read verses like this in Scripture, John 14, 1 through 3, the truth of the matter is no one really has a problem with these verses. No one has a problem with them because God created us, created every one of you, created every person to have this common sentiment of eternity, this idea that there's an eternity and that there's probably a heaven associated with it. C.S. Lewis said this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion or the logical explanation is that I was made for another world. 
that mankind, this is on your outline, mankind was created for eternity and we all want to be there. We all want to go to heaven. This is like fundamental with every human being, this deep, deep deep-seated thing that every person is made for eternity and we all want to go to heaven. Ecclesiastes 3, uh, 3.11 says, says this, Solomon says, God has set eternity in our hearts. God has set eternity in our hearts. And deep down, every person on planet Earth knows this to be true. It's something that they think about. It's something that they wrestle with. We all have a common sentiment of eternity, but we also have a common skepticism. We have a common skepticism. Look at what Jesus continues saying. I go to prepare this place for you, verse 4, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Thomas is basically saying, "Uh, Lord, no, we don't. We don't have a clue what you're talking about. In fact, a lot of times you like to talk in parables. We didn't have a clue back then when you were talking in parables. And we really don't have a clue now what you're saying. Classic Thomas, right? Like, you feel bad for the guy, don't you? I mean, Thomas is always in the spot where every time he gets mentioned in Scripture, it's in a negative light, right? What, what do we call him? What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas, right? I mean, think about this for a minute. How bad would you feel if one of your sins was the defining thing that everyone knew you for? Like, that's Thomas, man. You feel bad for the guy. In fact, if we had wrote the Bible, this actually kind of proves the validity of the Bible, by the way. If we wrote the Bible, we probably wouldn't even include this part in the verse, right? We wouldn't want to include it because you have this nice flowing funeral type passage that Jesus is pronouncing. And then, you know, Thomas just kind of raises his hand and butts in. Who wants to include the guy that is rebutting the maker of the universe? But here's what I want you to think about here. Thomas is here on purpose because the Bible doesn't skip over humanity. Thomas is the global expression of what most of us humans feel or have felt at some point in our life. Most of humanity believes in an afterlife, but the real skepticism and the real question becomes this, how do we get there? If there's an afterlife, and I think there is, and most people do, How do we get there? What's the the real question there? Our skepticism is based on how do we get to heaven? How do we get there? And this is what humanity thinks on their pillow at night. And here's the truth. For a lot of us, before we met Christ and for a whole world out there, this is what they're thinking about as they lay down at night. It's the thought that they have when they're in the shower. You ever have those weird thoughts in the shower? You're just sitting there and you're like, I need to go get some more milk for the, for the uh, house. These are the kind of moments that we're talking about here. Humanity as a whole, they all think, okay, there's an afterlife. I get that. But the common skepticism, the common question that humanity asks is this. How do I get there? 
How do I get there? How does that happen? And for mankind, we have created, mankind has created these man-made remedies to kind of salve our conscience in this area. To salve kind of what we're thinking about when it comes to the afterlife. That I can feel good about the afterlife if I think about one of these man-made remedies. And these are kind of academic, but I kind of want you to stick with me here this morning, all right? The first man-made remedy that you see is called intellectual universalism. Intellectual universalism. All religions, this is what this says, it's just a basic definition. All religions lead to the same heaven and everyone's going to be okay. All religions lead to the same heaven and everyone's going to be okay. All these religions are banking that if you do this thing, if you pray this prayer, if you go to this place and do it with sincerity, then you'll make it. You'll get there. You'll make it to heaven. Just be sincere in whatever it is you believe and you'll make it. And so it's good that you believe in Jesus. You're right. It's good that I believe in Buddha. I'm right. And that you can be right and I can be right, right? It's just this idea. In fact, even the bumper sticker, you've probably seen it, coexist, right? The whole theology, the whole uh, philosophy behind that is this idea that all of these things can be truth. That all of these ways lead to God, lead to heaven, lead to blissful eternity. And it sounds really great, right? It sounds kind of awesome. Universalism teaches, it even goes a step further, that even if there is a hell... Even if there is a hell and it's truly a real place, surely there will come a point where you will, where you will be redeemed out of that hell. That hell is, it can, it surely can only be a temporary thing. It's not going to be eternal. I mean, surely not, right? That universal, universalism teaches that we are all making our own path, making our own way, and that somehow... We'll make it to God. We'll make it to heaven. And you can watch TV shows. You can watch movies. And you'll see this ideology continue to place there. This idea that you're right. I'm right. Let's all just make some flower necklaces and, and be happy. It's universalism. The second one I want to talk about. This remedy that we see mankind making for our skepticism is moralistic deism. Moralistic deism. And, and I know that's a big fancy two words, but here's the easy definition for this phrase or for this, this, uh, this definition. Good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. And here's the implication when we say that. If we're a person that believes in moralistic deism, the minute we say good people go to heaven, it's implied that I'm a good person, right? I mean, I'm a good person, Jonathan. Like, I should make it to heaven because I'm a good guy. I do good things, right? I, I, haven't, I haven't, you know, 
committed an affair against my wife. I love my kids. You know, I've never abused my children. I, I'm a good person, Jonathan. Like, I, I just, I think I'll make it because I'm a good person. And good people go to heaven. But really what we're doing, if you think about it, our goodness, when we say that, it's measured by other people's unrighteousness. So here's what this looks like. We feel righteous by offering to God someone else's unrighteousness. It's like saying this, hey God, I'm here and I just want to tell you I am so much better than Joey. Sorry, Joey, you're right here. I had to, that, I'm so much better than Joey. Like, right, I, I know, I, I'm, I, I've watched Joey. I see him at Chick-fil-A, and I, I think he's got some things going on in his life. And I'm so much better than Joey. And for a lot of us, good for us means just better than, or, or seemingly better than what the other guy is. And the problem with this kind of measurement is those of us doing this really have to put on a false strength to show everyone we're good. Like the people doing this, the people saying I'm a good person are the people having to project goodness to everyone around them. If we are a good people that go to heaven, then we always have to be put together. So we project this image of what we want people to see. It's how Instagram got famous. We're projecting this perfect, good life that we have. I'm a great parent. Look at me sitting here jet skiing with my kid. I mean, we do this, and it's a projection of, to the world that we're good. But think about this. But when you feel like you've always got to be put together, when you start to feel that way and you start to project that, don't you start to feel a little bit like I'm a fraud? Because you know as well as I do, there's times in our lives where we're not put together, right? Some of you this morning getting here, you weren't put together and you walk right through that door and you shake Danny Luckadoo's hand and you got that big smile on your face. Things are great. Bless not stress. But here's the thing, when we fall into this tragic place and where we find a lot of the world, moralistic deism, it's hard to keep up with. It's hard to keep it going. Inside, you wonder, when will people wise up and see the real me? In fact, for some of you, if this is how you're living your life, if you're living your life in your own goodness, here's what you're really worried about you're worried someone's going to figure you out. And there's someone in this room right now, there might be a few of you in this room right now, your biggest fear is that people will figure out the real you. And it's this, this projection of goodness that we have around us. And we think, and there's a world out there that thinks, this is what they're going to do to get to heaven. But our goodness will never get us there because there is none. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us our righteousness, the things we think are so great and so good in our own strength, it's rags, it's filthy, moralistic deism. The third remedy I want to mention here, and this is one that's 
moving up really fast in our culture. And it's radical individualism. Radical individualism. And, and here's kind of what it says. This is probably one of the deeper ones to think about, but this is kind of a definition I tried to give you to, for it to make sense. It's bringing heaven to earth, quotation marks, bringing heaven to earth by prioritizing the desires of self over all else, including, I added this, including reality. It's prioritizing the self, the desires of myself over everything, even reality. And what I'm trying to do in that is I'm desperately trying to bring an ounce of satisfaction into my life. If I don't think I can get to heaven or if I think heaven's unattainable or far off, I'm going to bring heaven here and I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, individualism by itself is not really a bad thing necessarily. In fact, it has its roots in God. And what I mean by that is, think of how you were created. What does the Bible say in Psalm 139? You were fearfully and wonderfully made, that you were created unique, right? Imago Dei, we are created in the image of Christ, so, or in the image of God. So it's not saying that any individualism is bad. In fact, the, the gift of free will that God gives us kind of sets up individualism. But here's what you need to think about. Radical individualism is really deifying oneself. It's saying this, nobody tells me what to do or who I am. I decide and I define who I am. When a person radicalizes individualism, Everything becomes an attempt to bring satisfaction and heaven to earth by doing what they want and to heck with the consequences. We are in a culture right now where this has become one of the most prevalent ideologies in our world. We are in a culture right now where the phrase trans takes on a whole new meaning. A whole new meaning for us. There's a group I was studying this week on this, and there's actually a group called Transhumans. Transhumans. And this is what the transhuman movement is. Let me, let me share it with you. To be all that they think they are meant to be, they think they need to be cyborgs. Cyborgs. So what they're doing is they are replacing parts of their body, like on purpose, with machines, transhumans. They believe, listen, they believe their identity is to be cyborgs and they won't be happy until they're cyborgs. Let, let me just tell you this, and I don't mean to be offensive, I just want to be truthful. This is mental illness. It's mental illness. But we live in a day where the individual self rules all decisions. And we can't speak out on this because if we do, we're labeled intolerant. Hey, dude, you're trying to be a robot. You're a bigot. 
You're a bigot. I'm not a bigot. You can come to church. You can come to my house for dinner with your robot arm. But you need help. Martin Seligman, he's a psychologist. He's not a, a Christian psychologist. He's just a secular psychologist. But he put it like this. Events have occurred that so weakened our commitment to larger entities, for us as believers, that's God, as to leave us almost naked before the ordinary assaults of life. Where can one now turn for identity, for purpose, and for hope? When we need spiritual furniture, we look around and see that all the comfortable leather sofas and stuffed chairs have been removed, and all that's left to sit in Sit on is a small, frail folding chair, the self. You see, you take God out of the equation, and we no longer have the capacity to define even what is reality. And here's the thing, guys. It can't get us there. It can't get us to eternity. These remedies won't get us to God. Proverbs 14, 12, I wish I'd have put it on the screen. In fact, if you're taking notes, please write this verse. Proverbs 14, 12. Some of you know it by heart. There is a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that looks right. It seems right. It feels right. But its end is the way of death. And Thomas's skepticism, back here to the story, back here to the Last Supper, Thomas's skepticism here about how to get to God brings about one of the most profound and countercultural statements Jesus ever made. You see, most people don't have a problem with Jesus coming to earth. They don't have a problem with Jesus healing, even dying on the cross, even raising from the dead. Most people don't have a problem with that. They have a problem with what's said next. There may be a common sentiment, and there may be a common skepticism, but the difference is we have an uncommon Savior. An uncommon Savior. Jesus said, verse 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There was a prominent pastor a few years back named Rob Bell. And I'll just tell you, like early in our youth ministry, like back in 2008, 2009, uh, we actually used some of his material, kind of like what we do with Right Now Media. We were using some of his curriculum because it was, it was good stuff, right? It was great for students, and it really was. He had some great truth in there. But somewhere along the line, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, and this is what he decided. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and we put them on display, and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it. And lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it, but not everybody found it that compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note, they had written, reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell? He is? 
and someone knows this for sure and, and felt the need to let the rest of us know, will only a few select people make it to heaven and will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions, the real question, what is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? Bell concluded that the words of Jesus are just too offensive and narrow to believe. And follower of Christ, this is what sets us apart from the world. This statement. And this is not just some footnote of Jesus' teaching. It's all in the Bible, right? John 10, 9, Jesus says this earlier. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Matthew 7, 14, Jesus says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, Jesus Christ. Peter even says this in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus declares himself the way. And he uses in this phrase, you can actually go study the Greek, he uses before each word he says about himself, he uses the definite article for us in English, it's the, right? T-H-E. Not, and what he's saying here is, hey, it's not a way, it's not an indefinite way, it's an actual way, it's a the way, it's a one way. That Jesus says, hey, I am the uncommon way. John, 6, or John 14, 6, again, Jesus said to him, I am the way. You remember GPS? You remember the GPSs? Back in the day, those things were massive, right? Like you had a separate little thing. And the goal back in the day was to beat the time, right? Maybe not for you, but for me and in the house I grew up in. Um, <laughs> we tried to beat the time on the GPS. And now it's on your phone, and it's gotten really, really good. In fact, GPS now, they have different GPSs you can use. Um, I really like the Waze app. Waze is pretty awesome. You can get a British person talking to you, which is kind of nice. Um, makes you feel proper, you know. But here's the thing, you can't beat the time like you used to because they study your movement patterns and they know how fast you really drive. But Waze is awesome. Waze will take you through someone's front yard if it can save you five minutes. <laughs> and here's what else. They tell you where all the police are. I've never used that. 
But Waze is pretty amazing. What happens when you're on your little route and you get off the route? What, what does it do? It says, it says a word. Rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. That's pretty awesome because you can really get to wherever you're going normally about a hundred different ways. And it just works until you go to the Florida Keys. We were there this last uh, summer. Me and my wife had a little time off, and we, we passed over this bridge called the Seven Mile Bridge. Here's a picture of it here on the screen. And this is the bridge that you take to get to Key West, which is the furthest point in the continental United States. And we have to take this road to get there. And what do you think happened? And I did this one time uh, by mistake. Um, I got off the path, and it said rerouting. But you want to know something weird about it? Guess where it kept rerouting me back to? This road. You know why? Because Waze loves me enough to not put me into the ocean. Because there's only one way to get to Key West by car. And here's the thing. Every time it said to me, rerouting, and it put me back on that road, I didn't think to myself, this app is being so mean to me. I mean, this is so narrow, so narrow-minded. Why does it think I want to go this way? No, instead, I got on the route, the only route that it suggested. And for a lot of us, I think we look at this, this passage of Scripture, and, and maybe not us, but the world out there that, that lives, and they look at this and they see it as some kind of condemnation, some kind of thing that's against them. But listen here, this isn't a closed pronouncement of judgment. It's an open invitation to come home. It's an open invitation for us, for the world out there to say, hey, come home. It's Jesus looking at mankind, chasing every religion, working so desperately to find eternity and constantly redefining themselves to feel one ounce of satisfaction. And Jesus is saying, you're never going to get there this way. Come this way. Let me reroute you and let's go this way. I'm, I'm the way. You see, God gives us this in his mercy and in his grace. And Jesus also proclaims an uncommon truth. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. So what is the truth? Jesus is the visual truth of who God is. Colossians 1, 15 tells us this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. John 8, 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's not the truth that sets you free. Listen to this. It's not the truth that sets you free. It, according to the context here, it's knowing the truth. Truth applied. But if you think about it, truth by nature is narrow. It's by nature narrow. Two plus two equals four. Out of the billions and billions of numbers that that could be, it's one number. Who was the first president of the United States? George Washington. Out of the billions of people that have lived, that is only one truth. Go back to the 2015 debate. What color is this dress? 
How many of you see white and gold? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a few of you. How many of you see black and blue? Raise your hand. Yeah, here's the thing. Despite how we perceive something or even how we were raised, truth is truth. Whether you think the dress is blue and black or whether you think it's white and gold, here's the actual color of the dress. It is, in fact, blue and black. It looks purple on the screen, but it is blue and black. Truth is narrow. No one calls you narrow-minded for believing 2 plus 2 equals 4. And yet our culture cannot reconcile the narrow truth of Christ. And here's the thing. The issue is not that there's only one way. We could have a thousand ways to God and our world would still want a thousand and one Why? Because we want to make our own path. We want to do that, but we need divine path. We need divine truth. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also gives us an uncommon life. He gives us an uncommon life. I love the word he chooses here, the word life, because Jesus says this, hours away from dying, but just three days away from resurrection. You see, sin doesn't merely make you bad. Sin makes you dead. It's the reason why every testimony is powerful. If you're a believer in here and you say, I don't have a powerful testimony, that's not true. Whether you were saved in prison for killing your neighbor or whether you grew up in church and were saved at the age eight like me, guess what? You have a powerful testimony. Why? Because here's the truth. No one ever asked about a dead guy, how dead is he? Dead's dead. Dead's dead. And Jesus didn't come to simply make bad people good. He came to make dead people good alive. He didn't come to simply perform a behavior modification in your life. He came to bring life to you, and he did so by giving his life freely. And all of these man-made remedies are an attempt to reach God or be like God, be good, follow the rules, make the pilgrimage, have good karma, karma, re-identify yourself, All of those man-made remedies say do, but Jesus says done. There is a world of people headed to hell with their perceptions of what what truth is, but Jesus has made it abundantly clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The application is this. Do we really believe that Jesus is the exclusive way? Do we really, truly believe that? And if we believe that, how should that change the way we live? You know, maybe you came in here today and and, and you, you've kind of bought into moralistic deism. You've bought into intellectual universalism. You've bought into radical individualization. And God's saying to you, hey, quit chasing those ways. They're going to get you left in the ocean. Get on the path. Man, today is the day 
that you can choose the unavia, the one way to God. Or maybe you're in this room, and most of us probably identify here, most of us in this room would never intellectually embrace these man-made remedies. We'd never look at that and say, that's the way. In fact, most of us, as I'm saying them, are amening me. Because we don't believe that. We disagree with that. We don't embrace that intellectually. But here's something to think about. We might not embrace that everyone's going to be okay. Everyone's going to make it to heaven. But can I, can I be honest? And this is true in my life. A lot of us live as if that's true. A lot of us live as if everyone's going to be okay. And you know how I know it? Because a lot of us have never even shared our story with our neighbor. We've never shared our story with someone who we know is lost, that family member that we know is lost, that we know is headed to hell, chasing their, perfect, their own perfection, their own goodness, this other religion. And we see them lost and we do nothing about it. And we might not be universalists, but we sure live like we are. We might not be moral deists, but we sure live as if that's true. I want to invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. Do we really believe that Jesus is the exclusive way? How should that change the way we live? Does it change the way we live? You know what? Let's take the words of Jesus seriously. Let's sacrifice our possessions, our plans, our dreams, our security, and if necessary, our own lives to make the gospel known among all peoples. It's our only right response. Believer, if you're listening to John 14, 6, you have a response. And that response is get the gospel out. Make disciples. It's not just come to church and hear a message or sing a song. It's do something about it. It's putting people, it's showing people the one way, the una via. Where are you this morning? Father, I pray, Lord, for this message, Lord. I pray for my own life, Lord. The moments that I compartmentalize the gospel into a mission trip or into a once or twice occurrence where I tell someone about Jesus or I say, God bless you. Lord, God, help me to repent of that. God, that I would be a person, Lord, that shares the gospel freely, that I would be a person that shares my story, Lord, that I would show people the one way, you, Jesus, and that I wouldn't be afraid of ridicule, that I wouldn't be afraid of what that might cost me, but, Lord, that I would choose to follow you and try to help others see that following you is their pathway to eternity, to heaven, but more than even heaven, Lord, their pathway to you. Lord, help us to be obedient in this area of our lives. In Jesus' name.